3: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, April the 2nd, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody had a good opening uh, weekend, a first uh, Foray into regular season baseball on the program. Hope uh, your holiday weekend, Passover, Easter went well. Interesting show I have for you uh, as we kick off uh, opening weekend. As I'll be joined by former big league pitcher, former member of the Mets, Skip Lockwood. Uh, Skip just came out with a book called Inside Pitch, My Life as a Major League Closer. had a chance to catch up with Skip about 10 years ago Um a piece on Gotham Baseball Magazine, and uh, his wife also has written a book, and I believe, going back into the archive here in my mind, she was part of my uh, NYBaseballDigest.com program many moons ago, so uh, definitely enjoyed talking to Skip back then, and uh, you'll hear uh, that piece in in just a couple of minutes. Uh, As far as... Fast-forwarding here towards uh, 2018, uh, look, uh, hard to really sit down and give a long uh, analysis on uh, a three-game series or the first three games of the season. Uh, the the way things go, you look at people freak out about, and I understand, if, you know, you look at Yankees fans and some of the moves that Aaron Boone made. I know some of the Mets fans are crazy about lineups and Mickey Calloway and, You get crazy over two wins. You get crazy over one loss. Uh, You know, it's three of 162. But you can take away some things, uh, positive and negative, if you really want to. And here's what I'll say about uh, the weekend with the Mets. Uh, Better energy, really good energy. Now, it's opening day and opening weekend, so if you're not going to have energy, when the heck are you going to have energy? So that, that I will say. But if you remember correctly, it was almost off the bat last year. Uh, against the Braves, that opening series, that, you know, right away you saw this team.
4: Envied uh, throughout baseball, the Mets possess depth, relievers, and aces. Jerry Kuzman, Tom Seaver. John Madlack, Nikki Lolich, Greg Swan. Bob Abodaka and Skip Lockwood in his first full year as a med reliever after joining the organization in mid-75. I had a chance to go to the Mets. I was very pleased when the Mets called me and I came here last year and uh, I was very happy to get a chance to throw. Bob Abodaka was a relief pitcher here at 14 saves and threw the ball very well. I didn't really think I was going to get a chance to pitch as much as I did, to get a chance to demonstrate. Uh, The kind of velocity and the kinds of relief pitching i thought i was capable of doing and i was just real pleased to get the the limited amount of exposure that i had last year and uh, it is a transition it's a very difficult transition i suppose from being a starting pitcher to being a relief pitcher in that the starting pitcher is uh is the kind of pitch that has a very routine uh very much uh ritualistic kind of thing he has to uh to pitch and he has to rest, and he has to do his running, and there's, there's a lot of things that he has to be concerned with, where a relief pitcher has to be like a regular player, has to be concerned with playing every day. And Lockwood was ready whenever Joe Frazier called upon him. Lockwood appeared in 56 games with 19 saves, 10 wins, and a remarkable 108 strikeouts in 94 innings pitched. I do think about strikeouts, and I think if I can get strike two on, on most, the people I feel like I can get them out. Now whether I strike them out or not depends on whether or not I, the situation would, would dictate it. Uh I do try for strikeouts and I do now I'm learning how to do it more and more. I watch Tom Siever pitch and watching Jerry Kuzman and uh, Johnny Matlack pitch and I've learned a lot. And I think yes, there's definite ways you can try for strikeouts. And I think being here is going to increase my chances of striking out more people just because I can watch the artistry of, of three great pitchers.
3: We're back, and joining me is former big league pitcher. You Mets fans remember him for his time with the Mets in the late 70s, Skip Lockwood. Skip has a new book out, Insight Pitch, My Life as a Major League Closer. It's uh, published by Sports Publishing, and it just came out about a month ago, early March, and a good way to kick off the baseball season. I know there's going to be a lot of books published this uh, summer for baseball, and Skip's one of the first ones. Skip, pleasure to have you on. uh, I know we talked a long time ago, but uh, you know a lot has happened here. It looks like you decided to get into the world of publishing books, and and it looks like uh, a couple of five star ratings already on Amazon. So
5: welcome to the program, <laughs> Mike. Thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been a joy. Uh, baseball ended for me in 1981, and I wanted to um, to have a professional career after that. So I chose. To go into the banking and completing that career just a few years ago, um, I decided that I had some some great stories and I wanted to to write them down. So I, I set about spending some time uh, remembering and and writing down some of the stories that uh, the real stories that were on the field, things that happened in the dugout, in the locker rooms. Um, and I I put them together uh, last year and uh, made a book out of them. I I tried to be in inside pitch. I tried to be authentic, and I wanted to have people, you know, hear the honesty and and know about uh, what goes on in the player's mind. Uh, I wanted to take them as much as I could uh, with me out on the field. I wanted them to, to hear the heartbeat and feel the ball and, and understand that there's, there's a great deal of pressure out there. And one of the things that the player, every player, especially opening day, players have to do is come to grips with how are you going to go about handling your emotions and your heartbeat and uh, all the things that go with it. The player stands out there pretty much by themselves pitcher's got a glove on, batter's got a bat, um, everybody's waiting for something to happen. Uh, the player has got to be in charge and control um, of, of how they feel and, and what the outcome's going to be. If they, let, if they let other people get in control of that, if they get too nervous, uh, if they get swept up in, in the crowd or the noise, uh, they find themselves... Uh, trying too hard, uh, uh, trying to hit the first pitch out of the ballpark, um, you, you get you get the downward spiral. And I think the most important uh, thing for me was to be able to bring the the reader as much as I could out on the field. And if you got a chance to read the book, Mike, I hope you have, you'll see that there's there's first person narratives in the book that. Uh, are designed to uh, help the reader understand what it's like to be in uniform.
3: What's interesting, Skip, is that I know you you started your big league career with the Kansas City A's as a as an infielder, the third a third baseman. But your pitching career, uh, your debut as a pitcher was with the Seattle Pilots in 1969. And I know you probably have talked about this a billion times, so I'll make it a billion and one. But that's the the ball four team. And that was the book that, uh, even when I read it as a young boy in the the late 80s, was still very relevant and maybe salacious to a certain uh, degree. Looking back, you know, compared to what you see today, it really isn't. But, um, you know, that's kind of like the opening of, I, I guess, taking the fan down onto the field or into the clubhouse. And um, I was curious, you writing a book now all these years later, you being part of that team, albeit a, a small part of that team, and it's been a long time since a Red Ball Force. So I don't know how much play you got in there. Um, you know, it's almost interesting how you were part of like the, the book baseball book opening the clubhouse door team, and now you're writing a book of your own. Different book, but a book of your own
5: nonetheless. No, the Seattle Pilots were a hoot. I mean, <laughs> that team was uh, what was 25 players that, that the other teams didn't want. Uh, they were the undrafted players from the other teams. And so we all came together like a dirty dozen or a dirty two dozen. Um, I thought Bowden's book was pretty pretty benign. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily a Boy Scout, but I think the, uh, the book, if you picked it up today, is, is a, a lot more tame than some of the other books around talking about sports. The Seattle Pilots, uh, first of all, Seattle's a long way to go. And so every trip that we had to take was a long trip and no matter where we went we were on the plane and, and the, the trips were like forever out there uh, the we didn't draw very many people it was all six stadium um, it's cold uh, the the players were not interested <laughs> in the game so much uh, everybody was trying to you know play enough good baseball so they could go to another team someplace and, and we had trouble like fielding an all-star every team at that point had to have a member of the team be an all-star and we we had trouble trying to find somebody that had decent enough stats uh, to get on the all-star team i think mike keegan was our our all-star first baseman batting 220 i think at the time (laughs) Um, funny story about seattle you probably know is that was the team that became the milwaukee brewers in 1970 and All spring training in 1969, we were the Seattle Pilots. And then the luggage and the bats and all the uniforms and all the players' gear and everything got on a truck and was heading towards Seattle to open the season up. But the team was sold to Bud Seeley in the last, uh, I think, 10 days of spring training. So the team went to Milwaukee. And we, we didn't have any uniforms. We, and the players didn't have any luggage. We didn't have reservations anyplace. The field was, was still had snow on it. Um, <laughs> was They didn't expect us there, obviously. The players didn't expect to go. And the uniform, the clubhouse uh, uniform guy, took the spring training uniforms of the pilots and took pilots off the front of the uniform and stenciled Milwaukee onto it uh, over it, but you could still see pilots' words underneath. It wasn't a very kind of a hack job. And he went down to uh, to Marquette University and got us uh, hats with M's on them. So at least we had a hat <laughs> to wear. Um, it was the, the team, the, the Seattle pilots was a one-year wonder. I'm really glad I was on the team, uh, but the, the baseball, the quality of baseball wasn't as high as you would expect.
3: Now, you were a position player in, in high school. You get drafted, and you actually do a pretty good job, I mean, of uh, negotiating a bonus. You, you, what did you, triple your, uh, uh, the initial offer? And, and you actually came up with the Kansas City A's as a third baseman uh, at the age of 18. Now, what's interesting is that, and I didn't know this, and I think back, at Cranepool had the same situation, is that when you were drafted, if you weren't on the roster, they could lose you. So here's an 18-year-old kid who should be at the prom and maybe getting ready for college playing in the big leagues. And, uh, you know, it's amazing because today, uh, you know, yeah, they'll bring the draft picks to the field and they'll do a ceremony and they will get them to meet the players, but nobody, unless you're a phenom, Alex Rodriguez, something like that, would ever be expected to contribute or be part of the roster. And there you are as a third baseman, you know expected to be part of this twenty five man roster, which in baseball that's a big deal. it's not like you could uh you could hide you're gonna get time in some way, shape or form
5: oh yeah the uh the bonus protection rule as they they were trying to discourage bonuses at that time they thought the bonuses were getting the owners thought the bonuses were getting too big and out of hand, so they wanted to have a penalty for teams like like the A's, they'll be willing to take a last-place finish and and put, you know, six or seven kids on the roster, which is what they exactly did. Um, so we had to be on the roster. We're not the 40-man roster, the 25-man roster, opening day roster. We had uh, Catfish Hunter. If you remember the names of the guys on the team, Catfish Hunter was my roommate, uh, Jim Hunter. Um, he was on the team. He was right out of high school, Hertford, North Carolina. Um, Joe Rudy uh, came to that ballpark. Don Bushhorn was on that club. Renee Latchman. Uh, we were kids. None of us shaved. We, yeah, we, we were on the team um, just because we had to be there. Uh, and as it turns out, it was quite a blessing for, for everyone. The team came together, played pretty well, and all these young men, Got valuable, valuable experience uh, in the big leagues and went on to be the nucleus uh, for the Oakland team. Uh, a Catfish Hunter, uh, what a enormously talented uh, guy. And just through strikes, just a uh, country kind of guy. Simple, uh, sweet, and he just knew how to pound the strike something so he went out to the mound. You'd pitch a game, and he'd pitch a game in two hours. You'd be out, you know, on the bus back to the hotel, you know, before the some of the fans got there. Um, Catfish was just an enormous talent. And who knew? You didn't know. You can't necessarily translate someone's high school career, you know, into into knowing whether or not they're going to play in the big leagues. I was lucky. I got a chance to stay with the club. Uh, I was a third baseman. Ed Charles. Um, Easy Ed Charles was the third baseman. So they had signed me to be like the heir apparent to Ed, if and when he ever retired. And he was so good to me. He used to come out of the ball game, you know, early and give me a chance to bat, take his spot. He'd come to the the, the ballpark and wink at me and tell the manager he didn't feel good, and I'd get a chance to play. Uh, he was just uh, he was all he was all trying to help me, you know. Uh, Learn the way how to get to the big league. I I was 18 years old. I wore big, thick glasses. I was from Boston. Um, I I was the most gullible, you know, unprepared player in the world. And the guys on the team were great to me. Ed Charles was wonderful to me and uh, really helped me a lot.
3: And what's interesting is, uh, and I know you probably talked about this a lot too. You you, know, you offered a thirty five thousand dollar bonus to sign with the A's, and uh, yeah, listen, I got to give you credit. Here's a high school kid turning around and saying, "No, nah, I want one thirty five. Now, in today's day and age, it's slotting, and, and you know you couldn't do that anymore. It's like here here's the contract, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, but to a certain degree, that's the way it was back then. And like you said, they were trying to discourage bonuses by. Forcing teams to put these kids, these 18-year-old teenagers, on rosters, um, you know that that might have been an early good life lesson to what it takes to survive off the field in the big leagues during a time when the owners didn't really treat you guys well, where you guys had no rights. I mean, this is before free agency, way before free agency, and you you at the end of your career just started to see free agency, so you you were really at the forefront of what uh, became, I guess, the the financial revolution that all the players today are really benefiting from.
5: Well, it's true. I got a little bit of money to sign, and I was just either stupid enough or brash enough to, to think I could do it. Uh, it helped me because when I uh, played poorly, they didn't they didn't throw me back. They kept me, and they kept me in uniform, and I was playing in the minor leagues. Uh, but I would have been released. I wasn't. My third base career wasn't. Wasn't very good. I had a lot of trouble with the curveball, and uh, spent one whole year swinging at the balls and taking the strikes. Um, I would have been gone. They would have. I would have been back. You know, in college someplace. But they kept me around, and uh, they kept me around long enough so that I could change over to to pitch. Uh, I got a call from Charlie Finley one night after I had struck out, embarrassed myself, and the team, and I thought it was the call was gonna be, you know, hasta luego. I thought he was gonna release me. And what he said was, and he still had confidence in me, and the coaches and everybody had said, I was throwing well, I could throw well. They wanted me to, to try to become a pitcher. And that was revolutionary for me. I had always want, thought of myself as an infielder, a hitter. And trying to give all of that up to, to choose another position was, was hard but it, it was necessary. So I, Bill Posdell was the minor league pitching coach. He and I went to Florida, just the two of us, and we got a high school field down there before uh, winter ball started, and he taught me a, a windup and tried to teach me a curveball and tried to, call, tried to calm me down. You know, I was, I was wild, and, and I could throw hard, but, you know, trying to throw batting practice and getting it in the cage was... was was a, a little bit of a problem. Uh, with the big, thick glasses, much like Ryan Doran, you know, the people didn't want to face me very much because I might throw it behind him. I might throw a strike. I might throw it to third base. I don't know. It was, but yeah, it was, it was quite a transition for me to pitch.
3: You actually, and it's because back in the day you didn't have the. Advanced analytics, you know, like fielding, independent pitching, and and I think they looked at at players, you know, a little bit differently. And your starting numbers—I know you didn't have a winning record—but if you really start to dial in, it you were a solid enough starting pitcher where you could be a fifth starter, give a team innings. I know you weren't with a great team in Milwaukee, um. So I know that the bullpen and 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 what you did with the Mets coming out of the bullpen, you were. You know, you were at a different threshold. You were you were uh, one of the elite players, and that worked out for you. But do you think or ever wonder if you would a better team if they had just you know you we're only 26 when you transitioned. You were still very young. Uh, you were mid to late 20s. What could have been? Because back then, starting pitchers were valuable, not like today where you'd be more valuable with what you did out of the bullpen. Do you ever wonder maybe they pulled the plug a little too quick and they didn't look at you and, and realize that, hey, you know, what a better team with some run support. Maybe you're 15 and 10 instead of 10 and 15. And and, and, and all of a sudden in those days, 15 wins, regardless of the peripheral stats, you're a pretty good pitcher. And they, they look at you differently.
5: I, I don't, re- I don't regret uh, changing the, the relief. I, when I was started with Milwaukee, um, I started every fifth day. We had a good pitching staff. Um, I used to get uh, too jacked up. When I pitched, I had to wait four days. And by the time the fourth day, fifth day came around, I I could eat my way through the chain link fence that separated the the bullpen from the field. I was just too psyched. I I was really on go, and I tried too hard. So, as a starting pitcher, I had too much time on my hands. And by the time I got out there to to pitch, I was beyond having good control. I I was throwing too hard. I was trying too hard. I was too angry about it. Uh, The whole thing was just, I was just just an emotional player. Um, I couldn't be a catfish hunter. I couldn't calm down enough to just let it flow and let it go. Um, So, becoming a relief pitcher, although it sounds like a job must be more difficult because you're always coming into games where there's runs on runners on the basis of the games and tight situations. You didn't have five days to think about it. You just went out there and threw, always had a good arm. And so my arm actually got stronger. And when I went to a pitch in relief, I was throwing better. My fastball was more alive. My curveball was sharper, um, had better control. And some of that was because I was more not relaxed is not the right word, but I wasn't I wasn't um, too you know amped up, but because I could throw every day and and pitch in important games, it was just the right role. It was a great role. Eddie Crane Pool came up and he played uh, first base, you know, a lot of years in the big leagues. But Joe Torre, with the Mets, told him. Eddie, I can't put you at first base, but you're going to be my designated hitter, and I'm going to put you in the game every day when there's runners on base and you can drive them in. And I got the same role as a pitcher. I got to pitch in the important games and <clears throat> pitch in the, in the games when we had a lead and that meant something. Uh, and I was just – that turned my career around. I, I love being the closer for the Mets.
3: Skip Lockwood is joining us. If you haven't checked it out yet, Insight Pitch, My Life as a Major League Closer, new book that uh, he just came out with, uh, great stories. Uh, Skip, uh, you know, not only has an interesting career, but, you know, plays in an era of the 70s that, uh, you know, might be viewed a little differently now. You know, baseball is almost a different game, and there's some really cool, really interesting, fun things that happened during that decade. And I know a lot of you in the audience are probably – Young fans that grew up, and and remember Skip, so it brings you back to your childhood. Uh, You mentioned the change to the bullpen and the psychological impact positively for you. Um, You know, you doubled your strikeout rate, you had all this success, your close, your game is on the line. I think it plays into, and you talked about it earlier, how in baseball you're doing a lot of standing around, you're doing a lot of thinking. How important it is between the ears Uh, We see all the time guys come up they throw hard they have these golden arms they just can't get it done and it's not because they're not talented it's because there's that that inability to bring it all together or to handle the stress and it sounds like that was a big part of your transition as a position player to a pitcher and then a starting pitcher to a reliever and you had to battle that and master that at each juncture Is that a, a fair way of looking at your career arc and how you were ultimately able to have success.
5: Oh yeah, I I think the mental part of, of sports is is a tremendous asset. Uh, if you what you're thinking about and how you're thinking about the game, what you're able to visualize uh, are are important factors. And every sport will tell you the same thing. You know, if you watch the Olympics, you can you can see the downhill skiers and they're they're mapping out with their hands before they ski down. They know where they're going to turn and. How are going to turn it? Um, with my career, being able to, to roll a movie of me pitching before the game began and to be able to, to step aside and watch that movie uh, of a successful pitcher going out and, and pitching well and having success and, and seeing the look on the catcher's face and the, see the bat missing the ball and the visualization. Uh, of all of these things was so important. And I don't I don't mean just taking a couple minutes and, and, and snapping a photograph. I really mean that there's a movie that rolls and, and it it's got color to it and you could just sound and you can hear and you can feel as many senses as you can have involved in in, in the movie that you play for yourself, uh the richer in the and the better it's going to be. And then you have to believe it. You have to believe in the fact that that the movie that you're showing yourself is is really true, and that's why. For I think my book is a great companion book for little league coaches, and, and high school coaches, because in the book I talk about uh, how how I felt when I was on the field and what what things went through my head, and I think little league coaches, if it, especially at that young age, if they can get kids visualizing how how they go about dressing and putting the hat on and putting the uniform on, going out to the ballpark with pride and buttoning up the uniform and, and, and going out with your, your cap cap on correctly and, and just having a way that, that the uniform symbolizes something and you can see that uniform playing for yourself. I think the book would be a, it's not, I don't think mental toughness is the right word, or, or rigid thinking. I'm not advocating that, but I, I do think that if, if a young player can be, begin to believe um, the dream, that, that they can be uh, a, a player with you know, in the big league someday, and they can make that movie rich and powerful for themselves, and you dream it a lot, and you, you see yourself out there frequently, I think it can come true. Uh and especially, I think it gives them a tool that, that let's say, other dreams start to come in and they, they believe they could be something different. Um, it's, it gives them a tool that they can use for success.
3: You know, you, uh, you played for the Mets during a difficult time, the late 70s, where there wasn't a lot of winning, Seaver gets traded. But 76, that breakout year, I know you were with the Mets prior, but... Uh, that was a pretty underrated team. I was actually talking to uh, that we were having, you know, during those off seasons where things get, you know, things get a little bit slow. We were looking back at some underrated Mets seasons, '76, and that team comes up. Uh, you guys win 86 games. Uh, unfortunately, the Phillies were just way better than everybody else in the division. Uh, you also have the Big reg Machine in the in the West. But in a in an era if there were a wild card, maybe there would have been more of a race and. Because the Phillies were so good and ran away with the division, I guess this season gets overlooked. Do you have any memories of that team in that season or anything interesting to share? Because there's tons of Mets fans that probably remember going to the Shea Stadium and seeing you pitch and Seaver and Matlock and, and as you mentioned, Eddie Cranepool, uh, Jerry Grody, you
5: know, a lot of those guys. I remember that season as if it was yesterday. I was thinking about opening day yesterday when when everybody opened up and I had my glove in my hand, I was, I wanted to go out there. I I don't think I probably could though, but, um, I think, uh, you know, it's amazing, Mike, when I think back at games, when I can remember just specific games that I pitched, um, I can remember the emotion. I can remember what it was like to be out there. I I remember the pitches that I threw. Um, we had a great team. I thought in 76 Kuzman, uh, Matt Lack, and Brody, and Crane Pool, and Rusty Staub. I guess Rusty came along later. I just wanted to, while I'm talking about Rusty Staub, just say uh, we we lost a great player and a great humanitarian last week when Rusty Staub died. He, he did a lot for for me as as a friend, and he certainly was a great teammate. Uh, he did he did a lot for New York uh, with his charities and everything. What a what a great you know teammate was.
3: Uh, underrated hitter too, uh, uh, Skip. I think uh, gets overlooked because he didn't have three thousand yeah. hits. But underrated hitter for sure.
5: Elegant, uh, elegant player. I mean, just purposeful in his way, and uh, his his the way he approached the game was like a ballet. I mean, he was so graceful and uh, so light on his feet, and he it was just smooth. He's just a smooth guy, and great to talk to, and. Deep thinker uh, knew a lot about the game, like Seaver. You know, Seaver and I were were, uh, were he was my ride to the ballpark. Uh, to the he talked me into buying a house out in Connecticut where he lived, and so he he was my ride to the ballpark. And the day that that Tom Seaver was traded, I was waiting for him to show up to pick me up <laughs> to go to the ballpark, and he never <laughs> never showed up. Yeah. So I had, to, I had to take my own car in that day. And when I got to the ballpark, I found out, his, you know, uniform locker has been cleared out and everything. I didn't know about that until I got to the ballpark. Um, I I can't tell you how much importance uh, Tom Seaver uh, had on my career, helping me to refine my skills and understand the science of pitching. Yeah. Not that, that – that pitching is scientific, but to understand why you're getting players out and what you're doing that's impacting the, the movement of the baseball and pitching of the, the count situation and who who should be started off with a curveball and who shouldn't and why. And, uh, he, he was such an architect in a, in a baseball uniform. Um, he made a big difference in my career. He's uh, I still stay in touch with Tom a little bit, uh, he's, he's got a dedication on my book. I was very pleased to to get that. Uh, Tom, as you know, is, is, a, is a wine manufacturer, has a vineyard out in Calistoga, California, and that's where all the fires were this last year. And his winery, his vineyard was somehow spared. I think the fires went all around him. And uh, I was talking to him uh, because I was concerned, and he said he was out in the the middle of, of all the trees and he could see fire on the ridges of all around the, the mountains wow. around him. Uh, he got a, he got out with his dogs and a few things off the wall and uh, paintings and stuff and, and Nancy and he got out there, got out of there in time. And that I'm sure that must have been an enormously hard thing for him to do, to leave those trees and, and, uh, and the property, but he was spared. I, I think they're in pretty good shape.
3: Yeah, that's good to hear. You also have Ferguson uh, Jenkins as the forward in your book, correct? And uh, that's pretty cool. Another great pitcher. You mentioned Seaver, you know, Fergie
5: Jenkins as well. Fergie Jenkins is an amazing man. Uh, Hall of Fame in Canada as well as the U.S. Hall of Fame. Uh, very soulful, very thoughtful. Uh, Fergie and I have become friends over the years playing golf and doing events. Um uh, the, I was lucky with the, with the forward. We were doing an event for uh, the Major League Alumni Association, and Fergie and I were talking about pitching to a group of young young little leaguers and, and uh, college high school players. And he was talking about um, visualization and being proud about the uniform and going out there with a positive attitude and. Uh, every game means something. Every time you step on the field, you should have a purpose for stepping on the field. It shouldn't just be going out there goofing off. Every time you swing a bat or throw a pitch, uh, have something in mind. You know, have something that you wanted to work on yesterday, and now here it is today, and you're working on it. So he was a guy that was, uh, you know, very much uh, saying the same things that I wanted to say in my book. So I told him, I said, you know, Fergie, I just wrote a book, and it, all the stuff that you and I just talked about with these kids is, is in there, and you'd love it. Can I give you a copy of it? And he said, sure. He said, I'd love to read it. So I gave it to him, and then uh, we got together shortly afterwards. And he said, this is great stuff, Skip. This is exactly what, what I was trying to say. He said, I want to write your foreword for you. So I said, wow, man, you're kidding me, really? And uh, he did. and. Uh, I'm, to have a guy like him uh, take the time to, to do something, and he's, you know, uh, you know, all-star and Hall of Famer and, and all of that, to, to take the time to, to read the book and then to, to write the foreword, I, I was just blessed. He's, he's, a, he's still a great friend.
3: You know, you wrapped up your career basically coming home to Massachusetts with the Red Sox. You weren't healthy. I know you had some tough times there, but um, still, the Red Sox, you're a Massachusetts guy. You play for Don Zimmer, uh, who I know you you and he might have butted heads a little bit. Uh, different era, people understanding pitchers and health and things like that. Uh, any memories that you could take away from the the Red Sox year, even though it was a rougher year for you, that uh, at least, you know, that's, the I guess, the cherry on top. Well, that's the final season of the big leagues for you, and it was in Massachusetts with the uh, with the historic Red Sox.
5: I enjoyed coming home. I mean, it's it's for a, for an athlete to come back to the place we started. It's a big deal. Um, I was hurt. Uh, I hurt my arm in in the latter part of the season with the Mets, and when I got to the Red Sox, I wasn't sure that I could uh, throw very hard. I could throw, and I it looked good, but it didn't have my fastball didn't have the pop on it that it it had New York, and my curveball was a little little slower, so. I just didn't have the stuff that, that I had before. I didn't. I couldn't go out there with it as positive a mental attitude. Um, I love coming home. Being back in Boston is great. The Boston fans are, uh, are not appreciative of anybody that doesn't play well. So it doesn't matter whether you come from Boston or someplace else. They want you to play well. So it was a little tough coming back and and. Expecting to play well and, and having the papers and, and the, the news and everything, you know, write me up as coming back to pitch. Uh, soup Campbell, Bill Campbell was in the bullpen, and Bob Stanley was also in the bullpen. They were going to move Stanley to the starting rotation and put me in as closer. And then Campbell came back from his injury. He's kind of a, uh, Bill was kind of a screwball guy. He had a great changeup in screwball. And I wasn't pitching too good. So it was it was kind of a, a lousy year to end with. It was the last year. I had no control over that. But uh, still being back in Boston wasn't bad. We went back there and settled down. I went to MIT, as you know, after after baseball was over. So I I really enjoyed being back in the city again. I, I just wished I could have pitched better. You know, the, you want to go out of baseball with your head high and uh, – uh, I didn't get a chance to to throw my best when I was back in New York. I wish I could have.
3: Skip the the book uh, for the fans. It's Inside Pitch: My Life as a Major League Closer. It's been out for about a month. Came out in early March. Uh, any events? Anything you want to let let the listeners know about? I, you know, I'm looking at Amazon and I have a Kindle, so that's how I uh, I digest my books. Uh, but obviously, there's hardcover. There's bookstores, but. Let the listeners know anything about what you got coming up websites events the book anything that you think would be helpful in uh, convincing them to uh, yeah. to catch up with a book that really is uh, a fun read whether you're a Mets fan or not but a baseball fan in general
5: yeah well thank you I think the book is a a, a little deeper book than just a you know a discussion about baseball I think if the if coaches I, I, Little League coaches, high school coaches get this book. I think it would be good for them to read because it gives them some insight into what the kids are thinking about. For instance, if you have batting practice for Little League kids and, and everybody just stands around and, and one person bats, you might want to think about putting a mirror on the field or a small mirror on the field so the kids can take swings and see themselves swinging, you know, and in the mirror will will be as much as the tool as the batting practice will, for for the young people to be able to to see how they swing and what they look like when they're swinging. Um, I I do a podcast every week uh, uh, with uh, Ralph Ziegler. Every week it's called uh, Comfortably Zoned, and I do a podcast every Wednesday with him uh, for an hour, and we chat about everything, uh, and. So people can, can find that on my website. Um, I'm going to do something up in New York when I get back. Um, at the Yale Club, I'm going to speak. Um, I have some book signings and stuff like that. Um, I, I think I have a message that, that's important for, for players and, and something that they can really use, It gives them a tool to use when, when they play sports.
3: Well, it's it's been really fun catching up with you. You've been very generous at your time. Um,
5: I always like catching
3: up with uh, with players from different eras and and getting memories and and stories. And I know that there's a ton of those in these book, this this book. And uh, obviously, we'll check out the podcast and uh, and we'll stay in touch and uh, appreciate you spending a few minutes here and uh, be well. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right, Skip.
5: Sounds great. Thank you for having me on. Take care, Mike.
3: Take care. That's uh, Skip Lockwood, former Mets pitcher. The book is Insight Pitch: My Life as a Major League Closer. You can get it uh, obviously on, on hardback, uh, hard book, uh, at a bookstore, and uh, you know Amazon Kindle things like that. It is published by Sports Publishing. Check it out. We're gonna take a quick break. When we return, final thoughts, and uh, we'll wrap up our opening day weekend edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I thought that was a pretty cool way to start the season with a, uh, a look back, and I'm sure there's going to be a ton of other projects and books that will be part of the show uh, this coming baseball season. Let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to Metsmerizedonline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Final thoughts and appreciate Skip Lockwood joining us on opening weekend. And uh, like I said in the open, hopefully we'll be able to do more of those type of features. It's uh, it's always going to be fun uh, to look back, look at the different book. I know there's some of book projects coming out. Uh, I'm already in the works. We're bringing another author with a, a really fun Mets book in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. I don't want to give away everything right now. But real interesting stuff from uh, Skip Lockwood. Some real quick things for you, the listener. So uh, next week, uh, back with the Talking Mets podcast. Now, the Mets, and I don't think they're going to have a lot of them, but we'll see if they're good and, and they're in the brace. you probably have more of them. are going to have an 8 o'clock ESPN game, and then, like we do every year, I do the, the, um, the show Sunday morning. So you don't get a full – you know, by the time you get the show and the game is on eight o'clock, you know things sometimes change. So I try to do something different with a guest, you know, featureist type of thing, and 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 focus on that. So you'll get that podcast early Sunday next week, and then I will be guest hosting. I'll be guest hosting the whole show for Rich Coutinho, Uh Rich Catino of ESPN ninety eight seven. He also does a show on Sundays at eight thirty called New York Sports Wrap. W L I E Radio 540 AMs. Rich will be in D.C. covering the Mets and the Nationals, and uh, I will be hosting that show, which will be on, ironically, during the uh, the game. So we'll we'll be doing some radio, some terrestrial radio, and I'll also have that. I'll pop that up on the iTunes account so you guys can download and listen to it. Because I don't know how many of you want to have your Radio, you know if you're in the area, they're on Concomma Long Island area, I think that actually extends out with a pretty far radius of Suffolk County. Um, you know you could listen on terrestrial radio, you could listen on uh, the, the web, and that's always an option, and then you know we'll uh you know you'll, you could you could listen on replay, I think that's part of it and you know, I didn't say this in the open, but and I don't want to make, like I said, I don't want to make too much of everything good or bad so early in the season, because this is just like another six-game or seven-game stretch. You know, Every 10 games is like a season of itself. Things that you see now, good or bad, are going to get buried in the course of a larger season later on. But one of the things over the last couple of years since they won the division that the Mets haven't done well is that the Nationals come out right away and send a message. I know the Mets did take two out of three in Washington last year early, but that was after the Nationals came, and I believe they swept the Mets at Citi Field a week or so earlier. So you want to get off to a good start and have competitive games. You don't want to get clocked here. And uh, it'll be real interesting to see that because as much as the Harvey start tonight, if it happens, I know there's some snow on the ground. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on the weather. Uh, You know, that's important. Uh, What's important is getting off to a good start against the Nationals during this week. So that's something else I'll be looking for. In addition to how do those non-degrom Syndergaard pitchers, how do they do? It'll be real interesting to see how that goes. So uh, a lot more to look at, a lot more to take a, a step and, and watch, and, and we'll continue to talk about it here on uh, the Talking Mets podcast. And uh, I appreciate everybody for tuning in this uh, you know, Monday morning We recap uh, opening weekend. I want to thank Skip Lockwood for joining me earlier today. Of course, I want to thank all you good folks who listen every week, the folks over at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire, as well as The Grueling Truth, which is also part of the iHeart Media Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll see you next week. Take care.